Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to What on Earth? I'm Portia Clark in Halifax, in for Laura Lynch. I'm standing on the edge of the Atlantic Ocean, taking in the view, the waves, the sounds, the smells of salt and seaweed. It's mesmerizing and magnetic. And if you live right next to it, maybe a little menacing. We're never far from the ocean in such a small province. As the license plate says, we're Canada's ocean playground. And there are practical reasons to be close to the water, too, for fishing and tourism. But as much as the ocean is the heartbeat of life in the Maritimes, for what it gives, it also takes. And climate change is accelerating that. The ocean and the wind and the storms are taking away more of this coastline all the time. Today on What on Earth, we're talking about coastal erosion. I can see it from where I'm standing right now. The ground under my feet probably won't be here in a few years. Researchers, the government, property owners are all in a race against time, working on solutions to help us keep as much of this coast as we can. Just imagine how unsettling it is to watch your land slip away gradually, year after year, and storm by storm. Stan Peach and his family are in that situation. His 92-year-old mother, Joyce Peach, lives in Port Morion, Cape Breton Island, on Peach Street, named after their family. The house with an oceanfront view has been there for generations. In 1910, my grandfather built a home on this property that was 70 feet wide by 100 feet back, and there was another 20 feet before the, beyond that before you hit the cliff. Now the property is 70 feet wide by 50 feet back. So there's upwards of 70 feet gone from that cliff in 100 years. The water is closing in. Half of their property buffer is gone. Now the only protection they have now is a fence made of wire and wood that has to be moved back every few years so it doesn't also get washed away with the shore. And over time, the erosion's only accelerated in a world already feeling the impacts of climate change. I was over there uh, uh, in February, and there was actually a mudslide on the side of that cliff. So the ground isn't freezing. It is ocean, but it's also rain and wind and, uh, and, and the temperature. The temperature change is, is a big thing, because if I can see a, a, a mudslide there in February, well, there is absolutely no frost in the ground. Stan is worried. He's worried about the ocean waves coming so close to the property. But most of all, he's worried about his mother, who lives there by herself and is determined to stay. I can look out her bathroom window and see the shore down below from her upstairs bathroom window. I can see the tide coming in on the shore. It scares the bejesus out of me, and uh, I'm going to tell you that uh, it 
it doesn't bother her at all. We've tried to get her to maybe consider going into a senior. She's 92 years old. And no way. She's saying she'll go to their feet first. And uh, she's not having any part of leaving there. But uh, nobody is going in that house when Mum passes. You can hear that Stan has accepted the fate of his family home, especially because of the few and costly options available to protect their property and the unfulfilled promises from politicians over the years. Well, I've had more than one politician there, and they've all told me, yeah, we're going to do something about this, Stan. My father had politicians there that, yes, Joe, we're going to do something about this. And, uh, you know, nothing has ever been done. I don't know what's going to happen. I really don't. I think... It's a, it's a last cause. Stan Peach has a lot of company with his concerns about erosion. As we just heard, when his grandfather built the family home, it was well back from the edge. Now it's on a countdown to destruction. But even now, when the stakes are known, people are still building as close as they can to the ocean. On stilts, on cliff edges on the sand dunes even. Legislation is coming to curb new development right on the shore. The Nova Scotia government passed the Coastal Protection Act in 2019 and is now figuring out what regulations should be part of it. But it's only going to apply to new structures. So what solutions are there for people like Stan with existing properties close to the water? Our next guest studies coastlines and how and why they're changing. Danica Van Prujdi is a geomorphologist and professor at St. Mary's University. She's also the director of the university's Transcoastal Adaptation Center for Nature-Based Solutions. Danica Van Prujdi, hello. Hi, Portia. Glad to be here. When you heard Stan Peach talking there about the erosion, it's, it's so dramatic. What went through your mind? I really felt for them and... Just the fact that this is a scenario that is repeating itself across Atlantic Canada, across Canada, and and globally, where erosion is accelerating and we are losing very large pieces of property. And it is a huge hazard for people, coastal residents living in those particular areas. And I, I worry about her home and the actual part of that cliff actually failing tomorrow or with the next major rainstorm. And Nova Scotia is seeing some of the highest rates of sea level rise in the world. That's partly because of something that's called subsidence or sinking of the land post-glaciation. How does erosion fit into this picture? Well, what happens as we have our rising sea levels, and as you mentioned, also the lowering of the land, that means that we can have deeper water coming closer to the coast itself. And the deeper the water is means the bigger the waves that can actually reach that coast. And bigger waves means more erosion. And is there an experience like Stan Peaches that really hits home or shows that urgency for you too? Um, definitely. There are a couple of examples. Um, I do a lot of hiking in the Bay of Fundy and actually being near um, Five Islands and an entire big section of cliff completely falling down while I was walking nearby. And I'm very you know, lucky that, um, you know, didn't get hit. But also during Hurricane One, um, I live in St. Margaret's Bay and overlook a lobster pound and watching these massive waves come over and just completely tear away and decimate um, the lobster pound. And in the next morning, it just being a pile of rubble and half of it completely gone. 
Yeah, Hurricane Juan was really devastating. We haven't had anything so bad since, but we have had other hurricanes, and and every time our infrastructure is at risk. And we're addressing this in some way. Our government is with the Coastal Protection Act, which passed a few years ago, finalizing the regulations now. Could you explain what the legislation is for people who are listening who aren't as familiar with it? Sure. The regulation is is essentially going to be creating a coastal protection zone. And this is going to be a zone where you're going to have restrictions or regulations about what can be done in that particular area. And you're going to have a vertical setback as well as a horizontal setback. And the distance of that horizontal setback is going to be a function of the actual hazard or risk. And in theory, should provide safe spaces for people to live and work. And so what does this mean for current property homeowners or people who already live or or have structures that are close to the coast and maybe don't abide by whatever the new limits will be? Mm-hmm. So that is one of the, the challenges with the Act and proposed regulations associated with that is that it does not apply to homeowners um, that are in their existing homes that would be within the coastal protection zone. The only time where it would apply is if they are doing renovations to increase the footprint of their structure. So if they're rebuilding or expanding, they'd have to abide by the the new regulations? From my interpretation, if they are expanding, they have to abide by the regulations. If they're rebuilding in the same place with the same footprint, it is unclear about whether they would be permitted to to do those activities. Okay, that's still to be clarified then it sounds like. This sounds like a lot of work if every property or every area needs to be evaluated for its risk. It certainly is, um, but it is something that the province is starting to act on. And I think having a coastal protection zone and having a horizontal setback is going to be really important and it's long overdue so that people no longer will continue to be able to build within hazardous zones. But you see it as well as I do. People want to be as close as possible. I mean, they're building on sand dunes. They're building on the rocky beaches. And so that becomes an issue of an enforcement, doesn't it, Professor Van Prusty? Oh, absolutely. And enforcement is something that has been significantly lacking even before the Act in terms of the amount of resources that are available and assigned to be able to do that are, are very small. And Historically, we've the, the provinces had to rely on coastal citizens basically ratting out their neighbors if they see some activity that isn't allowed. So I do have major concerns about the ability to enforce the act going forward. Yeah, I mean, even those those concrete dikes and other structures that people put up are causing disruptions between neighbors. Uh, just to look at them more closely, are they effective? If properly designed in areas that are high energy, they do have some benefits, um, or if there's critical infrastructure at risk. However, in a lot of other areas, there are other alternative solutions that can be used that provide additional kind of co-benefits, and they actually are more resistant, resilient, they last longer, and they they cost less. So these are referred to as nature-based solutions. For example, we may construct a wetland in front of an eroding area, You can refer to it also as a living shoreline. So you have a section that is vegetated and also is able to take the carbon dioxide from the air and um, store it as carbon within its roots and within its tissues itself. And it provides a buffer against wave energy. 
Hmm. And what would be the cost comparison between a, a nature-based solution and some of these, you know, the armor rock type of, of situations? A recent a recent evaluation that was done on a, on a number of projects out west in the Green Shores program saw that the alternatives are about 30 to 70 percent less expensive to design and construct than a hard solution. A hard alternative of a seawall, for example, of maybe about $33,000 per meter. The soft alternative is between ten to $14,000 per meter. And there have been other studies that have also been conducted looking at the efficiency of these of these more nature-based solutions. And yet people still seem to think these nature-based solutions are highly experimental. They don't, you don't hear people talking about them uh, as much yet. What are some of the challenges to bringing in more nature-based solutions, do you think? We have to reimagine how our coastlines look. And for people, they sort of interpret the security of that hard, hard rock wall. But there's increasing recognition internationally about this and also across Canada about how effective these solutions can be. And it's actually not new. Um, both Acadian and also historical settlements would leave a natural buffer of salt marsh to protect uh, the infrastructure that they had behind. And we've known the protective function and for decades, but it's integrating them into engineering design um, that's become more of a challenge. And so how hopeful are you feeling about our coastlines, given, you know, how attached we are to the views that we enjoy from our shores? It ebbs and flows, to be honest, because I'm optimistic that people are recognizing the importance of the natural environment and protecting the natural environment that does um, that does exist. And if we are able to integrate more natural elements, we are going to have a more sustainable coastal zone and be able to have a safer future for ourselves and for future generations. However, I do know that, and I'm I'm seeing all around me, the resistance to some of these implementations. Uh, and some of that does have to deal with having practitioners to construct these in a cost-effective manner. I so appreciate your insight and your time today. Thank you so much, Professor Van Prujdi. Thank you very much, Portia. As far as the specifics of the Coastal Protection Act, we got in touch with the Nova Scotia government regarding regulations around repairs or rebuilds to existing homes. The province says, quote, as proposed, the regulations would exempt repair or modification of a legal existing structure located within the Coastal Protection Zone, unquote. But like Danica Van Prujdi just told us, if the structure's footprint increases, then the new vertical and horizontal setbacks will apply. The province also says it's going to provide training, guidance, documents, maps, and ongoing support to municipalities for enforcement. The act is set to become law in 2023. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts.
We've been talking about natural solutions to coastal erosion, and I have to give a nod of appreciation to the ingenuity of the Acadian settlers here, who built miles of dikes out of sod that are still holding the ocean back more than 350 years later. But even those are being challenged by rising sea levels. New solutions are needed, and as you've heard, living shorelines might have a role to play that's especially climate friendly. So how do they work? Where we have a lot of willow growing is where a lot of runoff would have happened in the past. And that space didn't have any damage whatsoever. Rosemary Lonis has been building these living shorelines for more than 20 years. She's the CEO and president of a company called Helping Nature Heal. We're an ecological restoration company that specializes in shoreline mitigation. And we're meeting up with her today here just west of Halifax in the St. Margaret's Bay area. Why don't we just head to the beach or to the edge of the cliff here? It's not far to go from the driveway, that's for sure. That's right. Yes, the house isn't far. It's less than 50 feet from the edge. To find out how she's using plants and trees to help keep erosion at bay. What are we looking at here, Rosemary? Describe this for people who um, aren't standing here with us on the edge of this cliff. Okay, so we have about a 35-foot cliff here, and, um, and at the base of it is a rocky beach, so it's really turbulent, which is indicative of a high-energy location where the waves are really crashing onto the bedrock. The slope is eroding, so boulders are tumbling down. Well, let's get a look at some of the work that you're doing. Okay, that's great. Thank you. Yeah, so here we've asked um, this homeowner to stop mowing, um, and you know, at least 10 or 12 feet back from the edge, which she has done, and that's you know taken up about a third of her lawn. And then as we come down the slope to more of the beach end, we can see that we have a brush wall on one side. We have little plants that we put in new trees and shrubs. When we say brush wall, is this all these boughs? Yeah, right here, this is this line of brush. And so what we're trying to do is add some more nourishment to the existing forest floor, but also we know that it's slowly gonna digest and feed the soil food web and allow for these trees to have a greater sense of resiliency to the wind and all the storms that we have here. Yeah, the wind that's battering us right now. <laughs> it's a big reminder of exactly the forces that are at play. And it's the root systems, it sounds like, with other species that you plant that are so important to maintaining the shoreline. Yeah, so it really is the root systems that are doing most of the work. I would say the above-ground parts of the plants are also working for us, but ideally, if we have plants that have really rugged, tenacious root systems, we like to use those. And then we also partner them with what we call the companion or the guild plants so that they work as a family unit underground to knit themselves together. So a tree has a relationship with a shrub and that shrub has a relationship with a perennial and a ground cover and a grass. And when you have lots of diversity within that community, of course, it is a greater, stronger, happier, just like our human communities are better with diversity, right? So we take that notion and we bring it underground. So we're looking at plants that have different types of roots, different strength of roots, how they attach to their neighbors and their buddies, and then we create plant recipes that are specific to the soil, the environmental conditions, and the goals of the homeowner. I guess we have to remember that erosion is a natural thing. I mean, uh, we're fighting it because we want to keep hold of beautiful properties like this one that look at over the ocean, but it's all part of the natural process that we are resisting in some ways? Mm -hmm, exactly, and it's my 
it's my mission to get erosion into the common language and into the discussion. We need to normalize this activity that nature is bestowing upon us. Mother Nature is in control after all, and we're just another creature living on this planet. And so before we started investing our homes and our you know, mansions in some cases and roads and infrastructure in this place, this very fragile place, we didn't really notice or maybe even care about the rate of erosion. Since we know climate change is a human created issue, it gives us this sense of we have to be empowered to do something about it. And so I often hear, you know, the fight against climate change. And I think, no, no, we're never going to win that battle, right? She is in charge ultimately. It's more about adaptation. And maybe we don't live on the ocean anymore. Maybe we have a 150 foot buffer, or, you know, maybe we decide to put our investments elsewhere and this becomes public space. I, just to jump in on that, I mean, we're looking all along the coast here and we see lots of properties that are built right next to the water, Rosemary, and lots of huge rock infill and that kind of thing. What are some of the things you've seen that people do to protect their property and try to stop this whole process from happening that is not on the natural end of things, which you specialize in? Right. Well, I mean, we've seen people use um, cars and stack them, old tires, construction debris that has rebar and metal sticking out of it. You know, um, we've seen someone who also had um, attached tires together in a big line through a chain, thinking that that would create like a bumper that the waves would bump off of. But what happened was the tires start spinning on that chain and then just chew away at the toe of the slope. So opposite of what we want to happen. And you're right about neighbor to neighbor because when someone puts up a rock or some other kind of installation, it really does just move the energy onto the neighborhood, right? The whole point of a rock wall is to dissipate the energy and protect that person's land, which it can do very effectively. Not anti-rock wall per se, but there is an outflow of energy that is dissipated. That energy has to go somewhere. If it's not chewing away at your slope, it's bopping into your neighbors. What are some things that people can do practically that cost less? Sure, one of the simplest things to do is to stop mowing along the front line. So move your mowing back from the crest. I would say at least 15 feet would be ideal, more if you can. If you can reduce the mowing, that also reduces compaction, which means that now the land can absorb the water rather than shedding it over the edge. So if you slow that down, then you're making some headway. Yeah, super rocky here. <laughs> and you can maybe notice from this angle too that the willow roots are tenacious enough that they actually worked, right? Like, yay, <laughs> it's doing its thing. Yeah. And then where we hadn't yet planted, because um, we plant in this kind of patchwork quilt method and then sew it together, that's where the winter waves would have come in and disturbed some of the spaces. And we'll see that at the end even more clearly. Okay, so we'll just carefully make our way down to the end here. To me, this is the this is the primary evidence of our work. on properties like the one I visited with Rosemarie live with a creeping fear of the ground they're losing. They can watch it happening in front of their eyes. But it might not be as obvious to those further from the edge. That's where innovators come in. 
my name is Barry Stevens. I'm a member of Acadia First Nation, a Mi'kmaq person. My background is in electronic uh, engineering technology. Barry sees future problems in Technicolor. He started a company with his son called 3D Wave Design. It creates high-resolution computer models for communities concerned about flooding and erosion using laser imaging and sea-level data. He began with his own town, Mahone Bay. And we showed them, like even a meter on a high tide would go around all those historic churches and cause great havoc. But adding a living shoreline to the animation and the waves dissipate. The town's three iconic churches spared. And they're putting in pilot projects for living shorelines. And that didn't happen until we went and said, look at this. And then all of a sudden it becomes real, actionable. Scientists project the ocean will rise by a full meter in Nova Scotia by 2100. And Barry shows them what that looks like. Instead of just numbers and two-dimensional maps, 3D models personalize climate impacts. They make them relevant to people's lives. Some First Nation communities, when we showed them what a tide would look like, they actually said to themselves, that's not right. They jumped in their trucks and went down to the where the fishing boats were. And he said, you're exactly right. I never knew. And, you know, we're somewhat disconnected because we're, we're busy in our own lives. This brings it into the comfort of your own home so you can understand what it means to you. And all of a sudden, if you go and say, you know what, that house you bought, you're one storm away from losing it. Well, all of a sudden, then you realize perhaps maybe we need to jack it up or maybe we need to, maybe there is something to this climate change. Barry's company is now working with several Indigenous and non-Indigenous communities. The goal is to help people visualize the risks and kickstart solutions. When scientists go, well, you know, that's going to be 1.77 metres in 2100. Well, what does that mean, right? Well, you go and add that to your tide levels, and you go and you see that all your low-lying areas that you think that are so far inland but are at sea level, including your community centres, your school, your fire department, your baseball fields, your hockey rinks, primarily places where you would go if there was a major catastrophe and use as comfort stations actually are in harm's way. When we showed that to the town council, they went, oh, my God, we're looking at this all wrong. The council he's talking about here is Lunenburg, home to an old town that's on the UNESCO World Heritage List. In 2019, Hurricane Dorian knocked out the wastewater treatment plant. It stayed offline for nearly two months. The town did an engineering study to figure out the problems, and later it used that data to feed into Barry's 3D wave model. And all of a sudden it became very apparent where the weakness was, it was the culvert system in Back Harbor for storm surges. It came through the culvert system into the low-lying areas. We contacted Lunenburg to ask how visualizations like this can help in town planning. An engineer got back to us and said 3D models are best for testing out different climate scenarios and seeing the risks to plan ahead. This is Barry's biggest hope. So I'm all about let's start doing this before we have to. Let's do it while we have time and we don't have to panic. So don't panic, plan for it seems to be what we've heard a lot of today when it comes to coastal erosion. In fact, time is running out in some cases, like for the Peach family home we heard about in Cape Breton. 
but a lot can be saved by considering where we build, how we build, and how we view what we see from our shores, the shoreline itself, in the context of climate change. A thanks this week to the What on Earth team. Associate producers Devin Nguyen and Serena Renner. Producers Kristen Nelson and Molly Siegel. Our special thanks also to producer Mary Catherine McIntosh. Matthias Wolfson is our engineer. And this week, Rachel Sanders is our senior producer. I'm Portia Clark in Halifax. Laura Lynch is back next week. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.